Hello, everyone, and welcome to You Are Beautiful. And if you didn't hear it today already, let me say it to you right now. You are, wait for it, beautiful. That's right. My name is Lawrence Zarian, but since we are going to be instant fast friends, you can call me LZ. On this podcast, some of my uh, closest friends from television, film, movies, influencers, designers, they're going to be here with me, with us, talking about how they feel, what makes them feel beautiful, and when they look in the mirror, what do they see? It's going to be a fun ride. Trust us, trust me, and let's have some fun. Hey, and by the way, let me say it again. You are beautiful. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another edition of You Are Beautiful with me, with me, Lawrence Zarian. And you know when you have something to look forward to? Like, remember when you were in school and you knew that spring break was literally right around the corner and that's all you could think about was, I can't wait for spring break, can't wait for spring break? Well, that is how I have felt today about my guest. She is one of those people that whenever I know I'm going to have a Barbara Feldon encounter, I get excited, I get giddy, and I'm smiling from ear to ear. So how did you like that setup, Barbara? I loved it. I loved it. You, you want to do it again? <laughs> do it twice. I'll record it the second time. Let me just tell you, Barbara, first of all, it is such an honor and a privilege to have you on my podcast. You were beautiful. And as you know, you were one of the first people that I asked to come along and play. So thank you. I'm happy to play with you anytime. <laughs> Boy, uh, somebody brought out a little bit of uh, a little bit of 99. So Barbara, as you know, the podcast is called You Were Beautiful with Lauren Zarian. And mm -hmm. the whole concept of this podcast is something that was born out of the genesis was these last couple of years that we've all been navigating through our new normal. And, you know, you and I will get to that in a second on how we got closer during this period of time because of the pandemic, because of the world changing, because of us in many ways staying in instead of going out. So let me just ask you this, with where you're at right now in your life, what is beautiful through your eyes? Beautiful. <laughs> Honestly, it's through my nostrils. Beautiful <laughs> is walking in the park without a mask on. I bet. But, you know, I think that seriously, the pandemic has made us so more thoughtful about what we took for granted and what we so appreciate now because it's in scarce supply, like freedom, freedom to do all of the things that we build our life around. Like I think of my life as a piece of fabric and there are all these little threads and some are gold threads and they consisted of going to concerts and which is a beautiful thing and music is a beautiful thing and having dinner with friends and conversation, which is my favorite thing in the world, you know, especially one-on-one -on -one conversation and all of these things are just so beautiful in retrospect. Even though I knew I enjoyed them at the time, they've acquired a special patina. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And any little experience I get along those lines, I just 
feel so grateful for. And you're also a New Yorker. How long have you lived in New York City? I came here right after college. I got on the next train <laughs> from Pittsburgh and I wanted to come to New York my whole life. I read about it in Life magazine when I was mm. 12 years old, you know, and everything was in New York for an actor then, you know, aside from the actual movie business. But all of television was here and theater was here. So here's where I knew I wanted to end up. So I was here for 10 years. And then I did a series out on the coast, Get Smart. I'm sorry. What is that show again? I haven't heard it. It's called what? <laughs> Just a little blip in our TV history. I mean, come yeah. on, Get Smart. So I was out there for 12 years. Okay. So then in 77, I came back. And that was 77. That was 44. Using my fingers so you can oh use my, my fingers God. as well. It was a while ago. Yeah. Your listeners can do the math here. I've been back here since 1977. You know, it's funny. Since you and I, we've known each other for quite some time. Our mutual friend, Lenora, one of the most celebrated vocal coaches in New York City, She's your best friend. She's my best friend. And thus, here we are, super close friends. Yeah. The one thing that I didn't think about until just that moment that you were talking is, as a New Yorker, one of the most important people in your life, also as a New Yorker who goes back and forth, is the city. The city takes on this character that is so such a forefront in your life. And because of the pandemic, we lost our friend for a while. So going out and experiencing and saying hello to your friend again must be so exciting and invigorating. Oh my gosh. Well, we've had a big spike here, so yep. there hasn't been a lot of yep. going yep. out lately. But you put it so well that it it is. New York is the other person in your life, and it can be as good a friend as you want it to be. And those of us who love New York have really campaigned to have it in our lives that way. I used to think of New York as being something that knocked on your windows in the morning. You know, right, it just said, right. come on out and play, come and play. And to have one of your best friends, New York, go silent suddenly, just become mute. I remember so poignantly when the pandemic hit, you and I were talking and I'll just be very candid and say, you know, you were one of those people and I don't want to be overly dramatic, but you were one of those people that in many ways saved my life. You know, you gave me someone a schedule. You gave me something to look forward to because for a long window of time, we had our Tuesday night date yeah. and it was us sharing our stories of where we were at that moment in our lives. But the one thing that you said about New York was as if the light was turned out. It was silent and New York is the city of lights. Yeah. It became inert. And yeah. then you're dying to have it hurt again, yeah. <laughs> if there is such a... But yes, that's how I got through it, because you were out on the coast. Our best friend, Lenora, left New York and went mm -hmm. to live in South Carolina. So the conversations with you on Tuesday nights, with Lenora on Friday nights, made a little semblance of a social life. So that part of me got very, very satisfied during that. And I'm very grateful to you, Lawrence, because you. you're the one who suggested it. It was like a life raft. It was also like a salve. It was like a balm. It was soothing. It was comfortable. It was healing. It was so many things, but also, you know, so many people want to go back. They say, you know what? I can't wait till we get back to normal. And I'm like, for some people, that might be a choice. But for me, I always look at it this way. We can't go back to normal, but we can step into new. And what that 
time did, what that time continues to do, because the pandemic has a mind of its own. You know, COVID evolves, it changes, it spikes, it drops. So there's this level of uncertainty. But what I have found so certain is the intimate relationships that I've never had before with certain people. Because what we're doing is looking at each other on our screens, looking, feeling, sharing, communicating. And I find that to be extremely magical and rich and deep and profound. Yes, I agree with you. And I think also it's taken away a lot of extraneous activity that kept us from not deepening within ourselves. Yes. And it also gave me, I mean, there are many things that I'm grateful for that time to do the reading that you said you were going to do. And it became one of the most satisfying, the most enriching things that I've done in my whole life were the books that got me through. Yeah. Like Proust. You were reading Proust. I was reading Proust and all 3,000 something pages. <laughs> There's a philosopher named Montaigne who I read. Who I was picking books that were really long. You know, so that every day I had a certain amount of material I was going to cover every single day. That was part of it. The other part of it was just having time to meditate, to start doing things that I intended to do but didn't, like Tai Chi. These are all alone kind of things, to do some writing. And this worked for a while. And I made a list every day, the night before, so that when I got up, I had something to do every single day. Something to look forward to, right? Yeah. And something like a project, something that had my interest, you know, that really captured my interest. I'm not sure I would want to go back to my life the way it was. I went out every night. I mean, and then sometimes for tea in the afternoon and dinner at night or... Look, Barbara, I've known you for a long time. And the fact that you could ever squeeze me in for a lunch or a dinner was always such a joy because you were just always so busy. Well, you were not here either. <laughs> Mostly you were sort of 3,000 miles. Two miles away. Create a little, yeah. It is fascinating though for me to hear you talk about, yes, let's say a struggle, but in many ways you had prepared yourself for being on your own because you wrote a book about living on your own. Yeah, I did. And it worked. <laughs> you know, that's the for thing. For a while, right? Let's say this, that I'm a human being, right? We're herd animals. We're meant to be in the company of our fellows. I went six months without seeing so much as a delivery person. I saw zero right. anybody for six months. And for the next six months, I saw my friend Buddy one time a week. And that got hard, you know, after a while. But there were days when it was hard. There were days when I thought, this is the happiest day of my life because of what I was reading and because of writing and exercising and getting stronger and exercise I did every single day. And now looking back on it, it seems like a rather enriched time in many ways. It also feels, you know, there's this part of me, I don't know if you feel this way, there's this part of me that misses when everything was quiet. There's something about it because it wasn't just me going through it. It wasn't just you going through it. The world was experiencing something together. So there's this little part of me that misses those, those quiet moments that we could all catch our breath. The other thing is all of that, so much of it seems so 
long ago because yeah. we've all grown and changed and evolved. And I will personally never be the same again. Oh, I think that's true of everybody. You know, everyone experienced it in their own way, you know, but we were talking about the book, Living yeah. Alone and Loving It. Yes. Which was written a number of years ago. The point I made in the book was to live alone. You need a lot of friends. You know, that was like your job was to get a big supply, human supply of friends. And beyond that, and so the friend thing sort of disappeared except electronically. Right, um, right. But beyond that was reaching out and reaching in, reaching in to get to know yourself better, to be reflective, you know, to, I don't know whether you get there in journaling or meditating or whatever any particular person's, you know, route to it is. But there's a quote that Rilke, the poet, said, we must be pushed down into our hearts. Otherwise, we don't go there. And it's important to have been there. And it was an opportunity. The pandemic gave us the nudge to be pushed down into our hearts and get to know ourselves better. The other thing was reaching out. And I found myself doing this. And I think a lot of people did, too, and especially at the beginning of reaching out to other people. You know, how are you? How are you handling this? Checking in, just checking in with lots of people, reaching out, reaching in and having lots of interests. You know, that's what saves us. You said the word reflective. And in those quiet times, we get to go within, we get to look, we get to reminisce, we get to think about people, things, moments, adventures that have come and gone. And who we are because of those moments. So let me just go right there quickly. When you reflect and you think back on Get Smart, what are some of the things that come to mind right away? Let me ask ask you this. What do you miss the most about that time in your life, if you miss any of it? Well, I think for an actor, it's always a great luxury to have a job, you know, and to have a job that would last five years was a terrific luxury. The idea that there was an endeavor that was a group endeavor that I was part of every week for, except when we were on hiatus, obviously, for five years. I wasn't aware of it then how important it was, but later I thought, yes, that was my that was my family in a way, even though nobody on the show really stayed together or anything. We didn't socialize. I think you tend not to if you're there 13 right, hours right. a day together. <laughs> you know, you don't go out to dinner together after that. So I think I miss that and I didn't really appreciate that at the time, being part of something. A community. Did you realize at that time what a success the show was and the volume of viewers that watched your show every single week? I knew it was a success because we weren't canceled. (laughs) That's one way to find (laughs) it. You're coming coming back next season, right? Sure sign. When you're actually doing it, and well, at least I'm speaking for myself, I knew technically it was a success. I knew technically what the ratings were, but you're just doing a job like going to a factory or something. And you're so isolated from the rest of the world, especially out in California, because when you're not on the set, you're in a car so much of the time when you're out in public. So I knew it was, but it didn't have any meaning. 
It didn't change my life in any way. I was just going to work and coming home and, you know, rehearsing lines. And later you look at it and you think, wow, that show is really popular. One of my favorite things to do is every now and then I'll send you a GIF. And you know what a GIF is? It's one of those moving, those moving images and it's a view, it's a view and Don, and I'll send you GIFs of you as Agent 99. When you see those things or you see the pictures at that time, what do you see? First of all, I never really watched the show after it was over. Really? It was so many years ago. So anytime I see a little piece of the show like that, it's fun to see because I think, oh, I remember that dress. You know, that was a Rudy Gernreich (laughs) design or something because the clothes were really neat. But I watch it like an audience, not like that's me in those pictures. I don't relate to that as being me. When you look at you then, do you recall how you felt about yourself visually when you were in the moment? Do you remember, because you were being photographed, one of the most beautiful women in the world, you were being photographed constantly because you started as a model. Do you remember what it felt like to be you? In terms of how I related to myself as how I looked, I was horrified, almost continually and daily horrified. And we watched the dailies. We always were able to watch the dailies. It would have been better if I hadn't. And I just remember sometimes just going home and saying my career is over. I look so awful. I was just obsessed with not being photographed from the right side of my face. And now if I see that show, I think, what was the problem? (laughs) What was I thinking? As you can see with my face, I'm sort of gobsmacked. (laughs) No, because it's what we see isn't what the world sees. Yeah, it's true. And it's not what you will see later in your life. If you look back, you'll see a different person than you registered at the time. You can't be objective. You know, it's so subjective. You mentioned that I'd been a model. And when you're a model, you assume it's all being done with lighting and makeup and angles. And when you're acting, of course, you can't be aware of of where the key light is. Uh, I mean, mostly, you know, it's out of your control. And so that you're very uncomfortable. The model you is very uncomfortable because you really think that you looked good in those photographs because the lighting was just perfect, you know, the, and the angle of your face was perfect. They hid the bad things and then they airbrushed the bloody thing so that any little defect, but there you are just hanging out yeah. just the way you are on screen. So that was hard for me not to be self-conscious that wow. I, I couldn't guarantee how I was going to look. It was a total waste of time. All of that worry, you know? <laughs> so that's going to sort of lead me to that next question. It's like sort of like the Barbara Walters question, but I think it's such a profound question to go back and revisit. So if you, Barbara, could go back to Barbara in the middle of the Get Smart heyday, what would you say to that person, to that girl that didn't embrace and celebrate herself? What would you say to yourself then? I'd say, stop worrying. <laughs> Enjoy yeah, this. Yeah. Enjoy it. Stop worrying. I mean, yes, it's not in your control, but the people who are photographing you don't have anything at stake in 
terms of making you look bad. I mean, they want to make you look good to just surrender to the whole thing. And I just feel that about everything. And especially the pandemic has taught all of us that there is not a bloody thing we could do except try to stay safe, you know, during the worst of it, which is on us now even. When did you find that moment in your life when you did surrender? Well, do we ever in every possible oh, way? Oh, that's true. That, well, there you go. That's true. And <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining. You're right. You're right. Because I always say we stop learning when we die. Life is the biggest lesson. That's, that's true. Yeah. I mean, if you have a problem of being self-conscious, for example, which many people do, and certainly probably most, certainly every model would, and you know, because that's her business is to be self-conscious. It's a problem. It's a neurosis, uh, depending on how extreme it is. In my case, it was a neurosis, and I had a lot of therapy, which helped me a lot. But it comes from childhood. You know, it comes from feeling you're not enough. You're not good enough. You're not pretty enough. You're not, you're not enough. That you just keep working on that through life once you've identified what it was. And little by little, your unconscious lets go of it. Your psyche gives it up little by little by little. But I mean, over a long period of years, like evolution. (laughs) What I love about you, and I think is so refreshing because, you know, when you and I first met, I was like, oh my God, I'm meeting Barbara Feldon, Agent 99. I mean, that was my first introduction to you. And I'm sure a lot of people get that with you as well. You are an icon. You have this place in history that nobody else can touch. Having said that, with the relationship that we've evolved into, the thing that I love about you the most One of the things is that you're very transparent in regards to the way therapy helped you with your life. And I think so many people look at that with shame and so many other layers. But I mean, look, I love therapy. It's changed who I am and the way I live my life. Oh, it totally rearranged my brain. I had a very, very good therapist. And by the end of it, I said, you know, it's like you've changed my brain chemistry or we have. I mean, he didn't do it. He couldn't do it unless I was doing it, but his guidance and his teaching me where the problems came from so that if something hits me in the wrong way or upsets me, I can trace it right back to the origin and then make the comparison between then and now. Now I'm a grown-up. I don't need my mommy to be there every minute, and I don't need what a child needs anymore. But you have to teach yourself that over and over and over again. It's a slippery little devil, you know, to try to get hold of. Look, I'm going to be honest and say, Barbara, you've held my hand through a lot of slippery slopes. And as you're saying, friends, friends are the ones that also help you pull you out of the mud and pull you out of those dark spots and make you feel safe, make you feel seen, and also make you feel that you're not absolutely nuts. Because I know that I called you before, and at wit's end, but you see me, you hear me, and you can relate, and then you can help pull me out. And I think that's a testimony to good friends. You know something? It is. There's no question. It is. And I thank you for that. But one thing I've learned, and I'm still learning it, and I learn it all the time over and over and over again, is that I cannot change anybody. They have to want to change. 
And then maybe I can, you know, say what my experience is, you know, and if that's helpful, that's helpful. But that is a hard lesson for people to learn, yes. you know, and I see friends who keep trying to do it, you know, with other friends and you can't do it. People change themselves. And if they're not ready, n- nothing you say, it's like trying to get someone to be sensible about smoking cigarettes. Right. You know, right. maybe they've had lung cancer even and they still smoke cigarettes. And you think, I mean, what is logical about that? Nothing. But it doesn't matter. Logic doesn't matter in human behavior. We also don't have the reference or the history of somebody else's journey. You know, we can't no. we can't speak to somebody's journey because we haven't walked in their shoes. And it is very hard as friends to sometimes sit back and watch other people struggle, other people fall, because maybe we wouldn't do that. But look at over here. Look at some of the crazy <laughs> we're making on this side. And I will say the one lesson that I've learned that I keep reminding myself is from my therapist is she always says, meet them where they're at. Because, you know, as Maya Angelou has said, you know, people show you who they are, believe them. So people show you who they are and meet them where they're at because it's all right there in front of us. Yeah, yeah. And I think the hard thing about realizing that you can't force anyone to see the way things should be in your terms, it feels like a defeat that you can't. And that's, I think, what's so hard about desisting to not even try. Just accept people as they come at you and just adjust to that. It sounds that over time... You're going to love me so much right now. It sounds like over time- you Couldn't keep, love you more. You, well, <laughs> you, you, maybe this one, we might hear a little ding. It sounds that over time you keep, wait for it, you keep yeah. getting smarter. That's ah, the money yeah. shot. That's <laughs> the money shot. Okay. I am so excited because you've been working on this memoir for quite a while. I know that you're getting ready to launch. Yeah. Elaborate a little bit about your memoir called Getting Smarter. That a memoir, it's kind of, you know, it's sort of a narcissistic thing, a memoir. But the story is so good. The story of coming to New York to be in show business and meeting this gorgeous Frenchman, Lucien Verdoux Feldon. I mean, come on, that literally is just laced with such romance and passion. Well, it was a crazy adventure. Nothing I ever expected. And very romantic, yes, but also crazy. And then also I did want to talk a little about Get Smart because, you know, there's never been a book about it or anything. So some of the book is about Get Smart, but the main thing is the story of my relationship relationship with this very unusual guy. And it's a love story and it's a learning. (laughs) It was a learning journey. It's a story basically within a story. It's your story with this love story. Yes. Oh, that's very well put. You're welcome. Okay. Okay. I know I'm in the acknowledgments. You're welcome. And I'm sending you cookies. But what you said before when we first started was, you know, it's like these different layers, it's different threads, it's different tapestries. And that's just one of the tapestries of your life. And here's what I love about the book, because when you hear the name Barbara Felden, you have so many things that you've done, but people immediately go to Get Smart, Agent 99. So the fact that you add that layer and juxtapose another layer and bring that together, that's what makes this book such a great read, so rich, so interesting, and how you 
got smarter in who you are. Well, yeah. I mean, we were talking earlier about therapy, you know, and to learn to understand why I stayed in a relationship that was just really untenable after a certain period of time, even though ultimately I see that as the greatest adventure of my life, you know. But yes, I got smarter about relationships and about a lot of things. And I didn't do it on my own. I mean, I had help getting there. But don't you think that's fascinating, Barbara? Because you were with me, you know, years ago was out when I was in my relationship and I knew it, you knew it. We knew that this was not the right man for me. And I just couldn't get out of it. And as you just said, you were stuck in this place, but the lessons that we learned, you know, one of the things that I take away from that past relationship is I jumped out of a plane. I went skydiving. I went hiking. I went camping. I said yes to everything. And I will forever be grateful for the lessons that I learned in that relationship that was probably one of the most uncomfortable relationships I had been in, in some ways. Yeah. Looking back on relationships that I've had over the years, I don't think there's one that I didn't get a great deal out of that I'm not grateful for. I mean, one of them was a poet and he uh, gave me these reading lists of the great books and the best translations. And I dug into them and the relationship did not end well. Uh, I mean, it ended, that's well, I guess <laughs> it ended, right. but it opened doors to me that area of my life that is so important reading. He showed me how to find the best stuff ever in the world. And I'm grateful. And that's just one, not that I've had that many, but everyone I've learned something, you know, about, I don't know, the families they came from and one was Greek and learning what that culture is. I've been fortunate. There are so many questions I want to bring up about Lucien and that relationship. And then I know it's such a segue, but the book answers all of that. And the way you write and how you basically bring the reader to that exact place in time with where you're at. You know, I've only read excerpts of it, but I feel like I'm there with you in the moment. And that to me is, it's such a gift that a writer can have to feel like you're experiencing it in the moment. Oh, well, thank you so much. When you're writing a book, you do feel like you're talking to somebody. And I haven't made an audio of it and I'm toying with it because it is my voice. And, you know, I would like to read it to people because I know the tone that I would like to have. I mean, it's a fun book. It's not a victim book or anything. I mean, it's kind of crazy fun. So let me ask you this then for a woman or for a man, I mean, for, I mean, for anybody, for anybody that's in a relationship and they're really not knowing how to get out or they're stuck, or whatever the circumstance is. So somebody's listening to this right now. What what advice would you give them, Barbara? What would you say to somebody that just doesn't know how to get out? What is keeping you there? Because ultimately, we're responsible for our own happiness. Right. And it's in our hands. And if we can't get out, something is keeping us there. There's something we haven't solved yet. There's something we need. We haven't let go of that need. And it's not a need that serves our lives very well. Explore yourself. You know, once you've identified that this is not a good relationship, if your best friend was in this relationship, you would say, get out and you're still in it. Then you have to say, I'm responsible for this. What have I not? solved? Where have I not grown 
out of this kind of self-destructive masochistic need. Situation. I love that you asked that question because my therapist said that to me as well. She said, why are you here? And you're like, wow. Who would, who would, no, but that's, that's the point. Cause I think we get so tunnel visioned and we get so stuck. Okay. Let's get unstuck. Okay. And this is one of my favorite parts of the podcast. I'm going to throw out a name and you tell me the first thing that pops into your mind. Okay. Don Adams. Energy, energy. Yeah, really energy. Oh my God. He made acting so easy. He made doing those scenes with him in the book, I say it, it's like getting on a comet and then just just climbing on the comet and he's the comet, you know, he just takes off and it's exhilarating, you know, when when you do scene that's kind of high comedy, high energy comedy, you're left feeling exhilarated and that's a nice thing. Don Adams, exhilarating. Okay, next, Mel Brooks. Brilliant. Yeah, really. Mel Brooks, Mel Brooks. There's like nobody like him. He's like this little smart machine or comedy machine. Or I mean, it's just like he breathes in. You know how we, you meditate, you breathe in, breathe out. Right, right. He breathes in and then he breathes out all these crazy, wonderful ideas. I've seen movies of his where I could not breathe. I laugh so hard. My dad would go to the Santa Anita racetrack and he'd always say, yeah, come by and say hello to my buddies. My dad, former mayor of Glendale, Larry Zarian. So the one day I go and visit with him, he goes, oh, this is my buddy, Dick, Dick Van Patten. And uh, this is Mel, Mel Brooks. And I was like, oh my God, dad, you're hanging out with Dick Van Patten from eight is enough. And you're hanging out with Mel Brooks. I was in awe. And my dad also said he is one of the nicest men in the world. Yeah. He's very warm and very sentimental and yeah, unique. Okay. Now this one's going to be fun. Just it has to Barbara. Now you know me, Babs. It's the first thing that pops into your mind. All right. Ready? Agent 99. Trench coat. (laughs) 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 But I know what you're looking for. Okay. Ask me again. Ask it. No, but hold on. Let me just do this. Hold on. I've got another call. Hold on for one second. Let me get it. Hello? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm, talking, I'm talking into my shoe. Okay. Shufa. Ready? Okay. Hey, Barbara, let's, hey, let's play this again. Take two. Okay, Barbara, I'm going to give you someone's name and you tell me what pops into your mind. Okay. Agent 99. Go. Oh, Max. Yes. Okay. That is gold. <laughs> Would you also just do one for me? Or would you just go, oh, Lawrence. Oh, Lawrence. Okay, let me just tell you something. So you know that I get giggly with all of that. You know that I get so excited because I love you. You're one of my favorite people. And there is still this little fan inside of me that's like, oh my God. One of my dearest friends is Barbara Feldon. So please know that I love that you just did that because I didn't think you were going to do that. So thank you so much. Okay, let me give you another name. Ready? Okay. Barbara Eden. Lovely. Yeah. She's lovely. I did a TV movie with her. She's just lovely. I mean, nobody ever says anything bad about Barbara Eden because there is nothing bad to say about her. She's just nice. Yeah, I've heard I've heard the nicest things about her yeah. as well. I hear she's just lovely. Okay, now, Barbara, podcast is called You Are Beautiful. So let me ask you this. What do you throw on or put on that makes you feel sexy, makes you feel beautiful. White top, black trousers. <laughs> I, really? could, I could open my closet and you just see all black and white. That's it. 
White, I have a white T-shirt on. Can you see me on our little video? And you also had on a black vest. I had a black vest over it. And I saw you get up and you had black pants on. But what is it about black and white that resonates so well with you? I don't know. I don't know. I never got to that in therapy. (laughs) (laughs) We we have better things to talk about or different things to talk about. It's clean. It's uncomplicated. Although Poochie prints were very nice. I mean, That was nice. And during the mod time, please, it was all crazy prints. It was wonderful. Did you have, did you keep, did you steal anything of Agent 99's wardrobe? All of it. (laughs) (laughs) First of all, Agent 99 wore my clothes a lot. She wore everything in my wardrobe and anything new I bought, she wore. So you go with black and white, number one. Number two, do you feel sexy? No, (laughs) no, no, never, (laughs) probably never. Well, no. (laughs) That's very funny. Yeah, I I don't think that's going to go anywhere. I think that, no. Do you feel sexy? No, full stop. (laughs) That's right. Because I think there's something so attractive and appealing and there is a, you, look, look, you, you exude, as you know, Gregory, my twin brother and I have such an affection for you and you do exude a sexiness. Are you aware of that? No. I had a boyfriend once who said, what a guy has to do is to throw you, to, to push you to the floor and rip your clothes off before you notice that he's attracted <laughs> to you. Oh, that's very funny. That is very funny. All right, so let me ask you this then. Is there a certain type of music that you put on that makes you, I don't want to say feel alive, but is there this go-to, is there go-to music that you put on that just makes you feel alive, excited? That makes me feel whole and makes me feel complete. And that is, there is a certain piece by Schubert, the impromptus, piano impromptus, and Chopin's Nocturnes, but so many. I mean, I used to go to concerts a whole lot. And that is why I went, because you sit there and not all of it appeals, right? As you know, you've probably been to a concert. Some of it is more intellectual than other pieces, but the ones that really, that, that really grab your heart or that really go so deep. And I've walked out of concerts of Beethoven. I remember Beethoven Sixth played by a wonderful orchestra, the Orchestra of St. Luke's, and thought, I'm so much bigger than I was when I walked in, you know? And wow. feeling that if the world stopped right now, if the bomb dropped right now, I would say I had my money's worth. It wow. was life was worth living to have experienced what I experienced listening to that music. Do you think that you're going to feel the exact same way when you're done with this podcast? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yes. Oh, oh, yes. 100%. Yes. Complete. As she rips off her clothes, I feel beautiful. You've made me feel complete. Okay. So, Barbara, here's the last question. First of all, thank you for coming to play. My final question for you is this. Please answer this question for me. And repeat it the way I'm saying it. I, Barbara Feldon. I, Barbara Feldon. Am beautiful because. I can't. Really? I can't. No. Really? Yeah, I can't. 
I love that. <laughs> I love that that's where you're at. Yeah. I love that that's where you're no, at. No, I can't. I can't say that. Can you say it? You can say it? Yeah. Because as we've talked about, I think we always continually change and grow and evolve. And I would say with where I'm at right now, I, Lawrence Zarian, am beautiful because I'm teachable, I'm earnest, and I keep trying. I agree with that. Yes. Very good definition for yourself. Yeah. That feels right for me. Now, tomorrow, I could be like, next, not happening. If you had said, what do I prize in myself? What am I so grateful that I was born with? And I would say enthusiasm. You love your enthusiasm. I am so grateful for it because it's nothing that I earned or try to do. It's just that things make me feel enthusiastic and it's such an alive feeling. And it- you know what else, Barbara? I like you. Mm-hmm. I like you too. <laughs> 